What is it like to meet Jesus? What kinds of things are important to him? What kind of community is he creating? What does he want those who know him to be doing with their lives? These are, it would seem, crucial questions, obvious questions for anyone who wants to follow Jesus. But what's What's strange often in the Gospels is that Jesus doesn't often tell us directly. He's often oblique. He's cryptic even. He speaks in parables. And this is one of a number of places in the Gospels where he's making a huge important point, and yet it feels somewhat indirect. In fact, at first, people don't even recognize him. There's There's something else strange about this encounter. The disciples are out fishing. Why is this strange? That's that's what they do, right? Most of them are fishermen. But if we're to accept the traditional chronology of events, this encounter is a a second post-resurrection meeting with Jesus. In verse 1, as Stephanie read, Jesus met again with his disciples. That means he's meeting with them again after the resurrection. His disciples have seen him raised from the dead. They've been a part of this novel religious movement, which is supposed to turn the world upside down. And, And now, after seeing the resurrection, they've apparently just returned to work. Well, Jesus walks up to them and says, hey, how's how's the fishing going? John gives more space in his gospel to Jesus's work after the resurrection than any other gospel writer. Matthew contains only five verses, Mark none, and Luke only a, a smattering more. John gives us two full chapters after the resurrection. But to me, knowing that, it becomes more strange to include what, or to consider what John includes rather than what others leave out. He devotes two chapters at the end of his gospel to tell us about the significance of the resurrection, Jesus's last-minute instructions to his disciples. What could be more important? But what do we get? We get Jesus helping his friends catch some more fish and then holding a campfire on a beach. Isn't that delightful? You have so much drama leading up to Easter. This is supposed to be the event that will change history forever. And yet the gospel writer who decides to give the most space to Jesus after the resurrection has him on an isolated stretch of beach, frying fish with his friends and cooking some biscuits. How quaint. Is this what life in this world looks like after Easter? We get no more parables, no more sermons, no more walking on water or opening a blind person's eyes. Instead, we get Jesus walking up to his friends, asking about their catch, and then inviting them to come 
and have breakfast with them. Why wasn't Jesus anywhere else than on that beach? Maybe curing cancer, healing the blind, releasing prisoners. He does work a miracle, but it's rather unspectacular considering what's come before. Earlier in John, Jesus took just a couple of fish and a piece or two of bread, and he managed to feed over 5,000 people. Here he feeds seven people from a catch of 153 fish. It's no wonder that scholars and commentators through the years have sought ways to spice up the story a little bit, looking for symbolism and hidden meaning, meanings behind every little detail. Even the great St. Augustine tried to assign some spectacular symbolic meaning to the number 153, but it seems that attempts to spruce up the story and make it more dramatic than it is end up ruining it. Don't we need to see Jesus in exactly the everyday set of circumstances that John depicts for us? Don't we need a Jesus, a Savior, a King who meets us in our home that's far too messy for our tastes to invite the neighbors over? Don't we need Jesus to meet us in our stack of resumes that's on our desk that we wonder if anyone is ever going to read? Don't we need Jesus to meet us in our wondering whether if our child, our baby that we love so much needs one more diaper change today, I'm going to lose it. Don't we need Jesus in those moments? Don't we need a Jesus in the kitchen amid the pots and pans as Teresa Avila put it in the 1500s? That's where she wanted to meet her savior a savior who accompanies us on our everyday journeys, a savior who doesn't begrudge our needing him in very ordinary circumstances, a savior whose resurrection matters, not just to the end of the world, but to the mundane things that we do every day. Jesus is a savior who makes breakfast for failures. This episode where Jesus calls from the shore to his disciples fishing has happened before, not in John's, but in Luke's gospel. And in Luke 5, the setting is relatively same, but the same, but Peter's response is totally different. When Peter recognizes Jesus on this other occasion, he falls on his face. Depart from me, I am a sinful man. But here, Simon Peter hears Jesus say, it is I, the Lord. And Peter jumps out of the boat and swims toward him. He had failed Jesus in a monumental way. Peter had denied him three times, and yet he jumps in the water and swims toward him. In Luke, Peter sees Jesus perform this enormous miracle, and it dawns on him that he's in the presence of divine royalty. He's in the presence of God, and therefore, 
the only appropriate response for Peter is to cower. He recognizes the vast difference between Jesus and himself, and he begins to feel like a fraud. He begins to feel exposed. Who is he? A sinful fisherman to witness the power of God, to be near him in this way. And this is as far as many of us get in our Christian journey. In and of myself, I'm not fit to stand before God. That's true, right? He's holy and I'm not. So in subtle and not so subtle ways, we avoid him. We go through life cowering before God, thinking that he is constantly disappointed in us and always on the verge of being done once and for all. Some of us may even prefer God this way. His anger, you see, is a lot more manageable than his grace. Peter in Luke has seen the power of God, but perhaps he hasn't become accustomed with the mercy of God. He sees Jesus rightly as one who administers the awesome power of God, but perhaps he's not quite fully acquainted with Jesus as the suffering servant who comes to offer forgiveness to failures. And so Peter moves away from Jesus rather than toward him. And so maybe we should ask ourselves this morning, upon reflection of these passages, are, are you moving toward him or are you moving away or maybe running away? And why? If your understanding of God makes you cower and run, if it makes you wonder if you have any business in his presence, if he truly saw all of you, he would be so disappointed. If that's your conception and it sort of starts and stops there, you know the impossibly holy Jesus, but not the suffering servant who goes to the cross for you and makes breakfast for failures. It's so difficult for those of us who live in that space, isn't it, to show real grace to others. If they knew how holy Jesus was, they'd cower in fear like I do. We want people to have that same experience of God that we do. We don't want to extend grace to them. We don't want them to be apparently so cavalier with his grace. Aren't they serious about sin like I am? But those of us who see Jesus on the beach making breakfast for failures can move toward him without fear and without holding other people's sin over their heads. These are the ones who don't pretend that they can hide their failures from Jesus, but neither do they want to. They may even begin to see their failures as the primary way in which they really encounter Jesus. These are the people that in the midst of failure don't immediately ask, how do I rectify this? How do I fix this? How do I get out of this? How do I remove these feelings of inadequacy as quickly as possible? 
But instead, in these moments of failure and these moments of doubt and these moments of struggle, we ask, what is God saying to me in this? What is he trying to tell me about who he is and I am? How does this failure enable me to be more like him? Do you pause in those midst, in those moments of failure, in the midst of discomfort, in the midst of confusion? And instead of just trying to move through it to get to the other side, pausing long enough to ask, God, what do you want me to see in this moment? What do I need to see that perhaps I couldn't see in different circumstances? As Americans, we are quick to think of failure and struggle as something to be avoided at all costs. They're a roadblock to our overall success. And so we think of depression, we think of doubt, we think of discontentment as signs that something is wrong or worse, that we've done something wrong. And that's why we're depressed. That's why we're experiencing doubt. That's why we're discontent with life. We generally avoid, don't we, thinking about these things as opportunities for spiritual growth, for emotional health, for building integrity and wholeness. We avoid these things because they represent at least a partial loss of ego, and we cannot stand that. They're a chink in the armor of the false self that we have tried so hard to cultivate. Thomas Merton was a, a 20th century monk and writer, and he says, every one of us is shadowed by an illusory person, a false self. We are not very good at recognizing illusions, least of all the ones that we cherish about ourselves. This is the man I want myself to be, but who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. And to be unknown by God is altogether too much privacy. My false and private self is the one who wants to exist outside of the reach of God's will and God's love, outside of reality and outside of life. And such a self cannot help but be an illusion. For most people in the world, there is no greater subjective reality than this false self of theirs. Whew. But it cannot exist. A life devoted to the cult of this shadow is what is called a life of sin. Do you see sin as primarily wrong behavior? Do you see sin primarily through the lens of those things in your life that God is mad about? Friends, I think the Bible indicates to us, and Merton is picking up on this, that sin is disintegration. Sin is living out of a false self. It's essentially living a lie, a lie about God, a lie about ourselves. We believe that Jesus is just waiting to make sure we get what's coming to us. But friends, if this story actually happened, if Jesus was the Savior who walked up to his friends on the beach and asked them, 
failures all what they wanted for breakfast and could he make it for them? Jesus is the one who wants us to be free, to be whole, to be restored. And this is what Peter begins to understand now. He's betrayed him, but he's been forgiven and he's been restored. And therefore, when he sees Jesus, he runs to him. He throws caution to the wind and jumps out of the boat and swims to be with Jesus. And I think it's good that we would ask, how do we know that we're where Peter is? Or at least we're on a journey toward that place. Here's how you know you get it. When others fail, they feel like they can run to you. Do you see how that works? When other people have something that they're wrestling with, they know that they can share where they are without the fear of condemnation from you or the dreaded raised eyebrow. When people are hurting, they invite you in. You feel safe to them. If you've met Jesus like Peter has, if you run to him even in the midst of your greatest failure, how could you fail to be soft, tender, open to others? Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? Twice Jesus asked him, do you agape me? And twice Peter replies, yes, Lord, I, you know I feel a you, these two different kinds of love that if you've been around church for more than a few months, you've heard preachers make a lot of, uh, make a big deal about. Is John perhaps taking a little creative license here at Peter's expense? Surely Peter isn't this dense, right? But finally on round three, Jesus picks up Peter's word of choice to inquire. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you feel me? And we're told that Peter was sad. Is Jesus just rubbing it in here? Is he pointing out once again that Peter has failed to understand what Jesus's love is really like and the kind of love that Peter is supposed to express back to God? Is that why John puts this at the very tail end of his gospel to make us realize, wow, I don't love God like I should, and I should feel ashamed of that. No, what is going on here, friends, is that Peter denied Jesus three times, and Jesus is reaffirming his love to Peter three times. He is saying my mercy runs all the way to the bottom of your betrayal. Peter keeps answering Philae, which is more of a friendly love. There is a distinction. And preachers often laser in on this as proof that Peter doesn't get it. But did you see any hint of condemnation in the text? You should love Jesus a whole lot more than that. I don't find that to be what John is talking about. It's not in the text. Instead of 
showing that Peter, at the end of the day, still doesn't get it, perhaps Peter is admitting that he was loving Jesus as best he could, even if it didn't rise to that sacrificial and hyper-confident level of a word like agape. Peter is admitting once again that I don't love you perhaps like I should, but I want to. He's willing to share with Jesus that even after all of this, he's still struggling, and that's okay. That Jesus loves him anyway, and Jesus restores him anyway. How comforting it is, it should be, for us to see Jesus accept Peter as he is, warts and foibles and feet of clay and all, and yet still love him, forgive him, restore him. Wouldn't that be a better ending to the gospel rather than, wow, just like Peter, I don't love Jesus enough and I probably never will. Instead, what we are invited to do at the end of the gospel is to come to Jesus in the midst of our confusion, in the midst of all of the ways that we fail to love him. And to say, would you welcome me again? Jesus comes making a meal for his disciples. And it's a meal of grace. It's a meal that for all time will memorialize his love for his people. And Jesus makes this meal for all of us, his body and his blood. But it's a meal that only failures can really understand. And it's a meal made from the very essential elements of the universe. That is the insurpassable love of God. Will you come and eat this meal? As Paul said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power, with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, did you catch that? Not rooting and establishing your own love, but being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know that this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, would you fill us with your fullness? Would you let us grasp how deep and wide and far and broad and thick and lovely and great and magnificent is your love for us? as a church and as individuals, would we take this recognition of your love into the week that waits for us? And would we embody this love for all that we encounter, just, if you, just as you have embodied it for us? And we pray in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.